and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guests this week are David Wasco and Sandy Reynolds-Wasco, an Oscar-winning production design couple who for nearly 40 years has been designing the world of movies for directors like Quentin Tarantino, Wes Anderson, Marnie McDonough, and Michael Mann. David and Sandy's credits include Kill Bill, The Royal Tenenbaums, and La La Land, for which they won their first Academy Award. They're immensely generous, passionate, and talented people, and I'm excited as today marks the very first conversation shared with three people in the room. If you'd like to dive into the portion of our conversation fully dedicated to La La Land, you can skip straight to part two of the episode. But in this first section, we discuss a number of topics. How their creative process ranges when collaborating on a set with Wes Anderson, Damien Chazelle, or Aaron Sorkin, an extensive discussion about their experience on Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, and the crazy plan to design and build all sets with only 10 weeks available, the Ingrid Bergman influence for Emma Stone's character in the original La La Land screenplay, a color breakdown of the world of the Royal Tambons, and much more. Folks, I'm telling you, you are in for a treat, and I can't thank David and Sandy enough for taking nearly three hours of their time on a sunny summer afternoon in London to chat with us. If you'd like to hear new content, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. David and Sandy, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us today. There's so many ways we could start this entire conversation, but I figured that we would take things from the beginning and talking about, you know, when we first receive a screenplay, which is a creative process in and of itself, you know, talking about receiving a screenplay, this is what you had to say about it. Quote, first thing is the breakdown. We go through every scene, set, and location and chart a map of the relationship between the action and the location, close quote. So I was wondering what is your process in regards to potentially annotating a screenplay when you receive it? And even before signing on, because we're talking about creative decisions you have to make throughout a career, what makes you choose a project? Well, uh, I'll start, I'll jump in, and I'll also start by saying that these are great questions, Brando, and our answers will be coming from me and Sandy. They're not necessarily what, if you meet a different production designer and decorator, you may get a totally different take on it, but this is our take. And now we've been doing this for, well, since 1981. So it's been a number of years and we do look for an interesting script. It used to be the script was sort of the paramount, the most important thing. Until recently, I started to think that it became secondary to who is the boss, who is the director. Because I now realize that when you get to work in the hands of a Damien Chazelle, that's the most important thing. Who is your boss? Who is the director? And to find that interesting person is sort of the most important thing. So, so that's, I try to, uh, there's kind of a never ending flow of scripts and things and inquiries that go through my agency. And Sandy does not have an agent, but scripts do come to me and the good percentage of them I tend to weed out. And then there's the occasional gem or, or jewel and then I have to go after that. I don't say, oh, I would like to do that job. I say, I would like to interview for this. And I'm usually on a list of maybe, you know, three to eight people, other designers. And then I interview and sometimes I get the job and sometimes I don't. But it's the director and then it's also the script. Who wrote the script? And often the best scenario is if the director is the writer of the script. And if you look at our list of credits, almost everything is the director is the writer. We didn't set out to have our career become that, but it's become really working for the very best writers and directors in the film business, including our very last most recent project, which is working with Aaron Sorkin, yeah. Molly's Game, big writers, yeah. and David Mamet and Quentin Tarantino. Damien, who actually writes his own 
Damien Giselle, yeah. Wes Anderson. Wes co-writes with Owen Wilson, with Roman Coppola, with Noah Baumbach. But otherwise, we interview, we get the job, and then, well, half of the time they don't know where they want to make the movie, so that becomes a big part of figuring out That's what, important consideration. Yeah. If you have the first two right, though, then that's minor. The yeah. reason it's important is because if those aren't necessarily right and you're doing... We had one movie that was scripted for L.A. but was going to take place in New Orleans. There's a million films scripted for all over the world that will go to Canada, which is great. I mean, uh, we love the crews in Canada. We love working there. But it's it's all the extra work that the art department and probably the producers have to put into it to make a location be something other than it is. So yeah. you're changing signage and license plates and all kinds of things that is just sort of money you're throwing away in a way because it doesn't affect the emotions or the storyline at all. Well, like Molly's Game, which was really a movie that took place in Los Angeles and New York City, it should have really been based out of one of those two cities. But instead, our job has become really driven by the bottom line, which is how to be most frugal with money. Therefore, it translates to going to a movie-friendly city, which would be any number of American cities, Atlanta, New Orleans, New Mexico, Toronto, Vancouver, and we ended up in Toronto. So it's our job to then make Toronto look like Los Angeles and New York. When all is said and done, Molly's Game was really just two days of filming in New York City and a few days in LA. Often our job is, it's not so much providing solutions to problems, and that becomes kind of a design thing. Our challenge was, okay, let's make Molly's Game looked like it was shot where it was written. Actually, the director, Aaron Sorkin, really was frustrated in the beginning because he wanted to shoot in New York City and he wanted to shoot in L.A. And so we, we just had to assure him we'll make, we'll, we'll, make, make we'll take care of this. And actually, I think we succeeded in that most audiences that see the movie, they're like, Really? You didn't shoot it in L.A.? Or, or they didn't I, know I, they we didn't know that. Built. We did a, another movie right after Reservoir Dogs, that was directed by Roger Avery, a movie called Killing Zoe. Roger got the Oscar with Quentin because he co-wrote Pulp Fiction. And Roger did this movie that was all in France. And we did the entire movie, very low budget, French bank robbery movie, all in downtown L.A., it, it's kind it of an obscure movie, but people stumble upon it and they, they're like, you shot that in L.A.? I thought it was shot in Paris. But our, that's our job. It's to just, just like what Sandy's saying, it's to sell that the movie takes place where it was scripted. I, I tend to not so much like, although I very much admire mentor designers that do these kind of world-looking movies like Harry Potter. I sort of like the more grounded, location-driven, either contemporary or, or not-so-distant period-type movies. That's I think sort that of... probably goes back to thinking the director is number one, a director-writer, and often those are extremely terrific and talented, but don't you feel it's a little more corporate? Uh, I, I, I still don't want to do a movie just to showcase the design I want to do a good movie mm. and if the product comes out as a good looking movie we didn't intend to do Royal Tannenbaums to be this you know now few decades later although small but it's a groundbreaking visual movie that influenced fashion brought back Lacoste I mean, it was a big thing. We didn't intend to do that. We're like, okay, it's this little family house, and this is where this quirky family lives, and you just do this under the direction of Wes Anderson. There were three extraordinary children in the Tenenbaum family. Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. What'd you think, Dad? Mm, didn't seem believable to me. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. Chaz Tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens. I said, sell it, yeah. Well, I'm on my way. They were brilliant. They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. He also stole bonds out of my safety deposit box when I was 14. <laughs> now, for the first time in 22 years, they are all living together under the same roof. I hear you're dying. Ooh, how long are you going to last? month, a year. I've got six weeks to set things right. <laughs> I want this family to love me. Right, Lisa. You know who I am? I'm your granddad. His name is Royal Tenenbaum. He told us he was already dead. Let's hit it.
we didn't pick that because, oh, this is an opportunity to do a visually astounding movie. We were nominated for, we might have even won, I'm not sure, Art Directors Guild Award, which is within the industry. It's our peers. But the movies that I like, period movies, The Godfather, and we've had the opportunity to do a few period things. But I think, again, for all of those, is that when we first get the script delivered to us, it's the first read. I know you do, too. We try and just read it straight through without making any notes, just to see how it feels and how the pace is. And are you gripped or do you constantly getting up and making phone calls or going doing something else? For the most part, those gripping scripts, the scripts that have a, a story that you haven't seen before, characters you haven't seen before, something that you'll want to reread in 50 years or re or see again on film, those are the things then we'll say, yes, we want to do this. And those... Or yes, we'll want to interview. Yeah, and those films go across the fantasy to the reality to the period. It doesn't really matter. It's just about the script being good. And then the next one is an interview, and then you read it again more carefully and start doing your breakdown. notations. It's not a thorough breakdown. It's more, okay, this would have to be, we're in this set for a number of pages, so let's consider that maybe a build, or there's some action in it that makes you think you should build the set, that's something that you need to talk to the director about. Any kind of tricky things, your, your notes that you want, you want to take advantage of that meeting with the director. You want to note those down. The other thing that's nice is that when a project comes along based on a book, uh, there was a project after Molly's Game that we actually invested a lot of time and effort. It was almost a year of work with the Chilean director, Pablo Lorraine, who did uh, Jackie. We had a project based on a book called The True American. And for various reasons, it ended up falling apart. But it was based on a fantastic book, very interesting, true story. And, and, and what's interesting is that people do these screenplays and ideas on things that are not based on reality. And the things that when you realize these true stories are so astounding and weird. True American, it was a book and it was an interesting documentary. Yeah. So we had these two things that we were able to pull from for ideas, which was quite helpful. Same with Molly's Game. Molly's Game was a book. I was able to meet very briefly with uh, Molly Bloom, who's the woman that wrote the book and the character, and get information from her. However, Aaron Sorkin didn't want to do a documentary. We were doing a movie based on this character, but we pretty much stuck with her story. Getting back to what Sandy was saying, you read it and get the feeling for it, and then you can do sort of a set list or a list of the sets. And as you progress through, is this a location movie? Meaning, are you going to find interesting real places that then you finesse and add built set elements to make it work for the story? Or is this a movie where you're in stages that are adjourning and you go from stage to stage? As we've evolved through different movies, I actually almost like to not be on a stage. I think our job is to give the actors, to give them an environment that allows them to do their craft, try to give them a space that will make their job easier. And that's the props that are handed to them. So the art direction is everything from the type of car that they drive to the costume that they wear to the room that they're in. So I do like to try to steer things to be a practical location first, even though that comes with a host of hassles, you know, if it's outside in the wintertime and all sorts of different things. And then if something becomes too demanding for a hundred person crew, or if there's so many pages in a little room, then it maybe becomes a better idea to build this as a set. So I almost approach every movie as let's try to do this as a practical location as possible. And then if you need to build a set, then you build the set because we haven't done these big $300 million special effects, CGI extravaganzas, nor do I really, I'm not that interested in doing them. But the bigger movies that we've done, for instance, say like Inglorious Bastards, and having had worked with Quentin from Reservoir Dogs right up to actually our last movie with him was Inglorious Bastard. So we did virtually every feature film that he directed, we designed. He did he did a couple of offshoot things with his buddy Robert Rodriguez and they were 
four rooms, which was little four little vignettes. We did not do that movie. But we started with Quentin, who actually liked practical locations more than built sets. The last movie that we did with him, which was Inglourious Bastards, we actually had a very short window of time. We had 10 weeks from the time that we were hired to day one of principal photography. And there was many, many, many sets. And then challenging aspects about the sets, which involve fire, things that are potentially dangerous. We approached the whole movie with trying to find practical locations in Berlin that would work for telling the story. So we spent the first few weeks actually finding very, very interesting locations, including a really wonderful French farmhouse that we opened the movie at. When he arrived after we scouted locations, he shortly thereafter decided to try to build certain things and then that became more and more and more of sets being built including the French farmhouse in the very beginning of the movie we found an interesting exterior so it's a practical location but then we built the entire stone house and then we built it also on a stage to do a cross-section of it to be able to hand down and look under the house. And then that evolved to building the theater set, which had to burn down and then blow up with one take. But we actually found very interesting old cinemas. They were bits and pieces, like maybe a lobby was in one cinema and then a decrepit auditorium was in another location. Very, very, very interesting locations in Berlin. It's interesting because the same thing happened on Molly's Game in that we kind of fell into the bluff of the producers saying, okay, this is very, very low budget. We need to do this as a practical location, which was very straightforward. And we were like, okay, it's a courtroom, it's a bar, it's a few you know, different things. And so we also approached it like practical location, found some interesting things, ran into a problem with the courtroom which was many, many, many pages of dialogue. And that usually drives whether you build a set. If you're in a set for so long with your film crew and the actors, it maybe becomes most practical to build. So that also evolved. We were kind of collateral part of the producers trying to trick the money company into this being a very frugal movie. And, and then it got thrown to the art department to build everything. So we were like, okay, we have to build a courtroom. We have to build Molly's apartment in Manhattan, which is a high-end apartment. We have to build her apartment in West Hollywood, the bar, well, which was a whiskey. a little bit impractical to do locations only because we started filming in November or something, so it got very cold. We couldn't be in a bar with the crew standing out in snow you know, the whole time we're filming or be on a penthouse where things were scripted and then having the crew go up and down elevators and then they all have to go out for lunch and they all have to come back in. So it, it became more sense. practical to but the ball. great thing about these exercises even what you were saying at the beginning about loving locations is the scouting informed the actual final builds so if the director in a penthouse a real one liked the windows liked the, the layout the layout the way things move from room to room or something in the bar that he is attracted to anything a cracked mirror a wall of posters those are things that can be brought into the final design later which is great those are all really but that good. was that was interesting because again, that's based on a real person that traveled through LA to New York and she actually ran this poker game in the basement of the Viper Room, which is a real place. So you're able to copy the Viper Room and build that, as I said. Whereas Damien Chazelle's La La Land was in a contemporary look at Los Angeles but he wanted it to be a mix going through reality next to a kind of heightened reality and fantasy. But the audience really wouldn't know where there wasn't a delineated line. And he wanted actually some built sets to be very real looking, but he wanted to make the practical locations look fake, which meant waiting to magic hour, painting things a certain way, like Jacques Demy. I mean, our Bible was Jacques Demy. That was our reference. So many directors now, not all, but so many, like Quentin, dictating to us how he wanted things, as well as Damien would be, like this movie, like this movie. Go look at that stairway in that movie. I want that to be the stairway in the lobby in Inglourious Bastard. Damien was even more so. We had a list of hundreds of movies that we referred to. You're not just an actress. What do you mean, just an actress? You said it yourself. You're a, you're a child prodigy playwright. That is not what I said. Well, you're too modest to say it, but it's true. 
for you could just write your own roles, you know, write something that's as interesting as you are, and you don't have to audition for this. Yeah. Uh, Pishikaka. Look at Louis Armstrong. You know, he could have just played the marching band charts that he was given, but he didn't do. That. What did he do? What did he do? Well, he made history, didn't he? Well, I'm gonna stop auditioning and I'm gonna make history instead. Well, my work is done here. I should probably tell you something now, just to get it out of the way. Mm -hmm. I hate jazz. What are you doing right now? Nothing. Getting back to, okay, what is the process? We put together a lookbook or a visual idea. Some art directors will do it on their computer. I still like to do, we do it on uh, a laptop or then make a hard copy book of photos and sketches and drawings and things of this is what the movie would be like. So when I met Damien, we found that we both had, he had a great lookbook that he put together of visual ideas. Very, very interesting. As a matter of fact, this, this is his lookbook of La La Land. And in that lookbook were a lot of pictures from Pulp Fiction, he liked Boogie Nights. So I, I happened to have done one of the movies that he was very much trying to copy, but we had the same photograph. And so he was like, oh, this is great. So we really were on the same page with an idea of how the movie should look. And then he also did, prior to me being hired, he did a version of a lookbook, but it was like a little mini movie that because before they even think of hiring a production designer, they have to get the movie greenlit. So it's interesting because a director is doing the same thing that I'm doing. He's trying to, I'm trying to get the job. Damien is trying to get the job. He's trying to sell this idea to a studio. Musicals were like, not really a big thing. Now there's, quite popular. Spielberg is making West Side Story. And so he did a thing that was rather slick and it was really interesting. It was a little mini, like five minute movie of edited clips and he pulled from Boogie Nights, Pulp Fiction, the Jacques Demy movies. He was singing in the rain and he also did the James he, Dean. It uh, was wonderful, but it was interesting to look at, at La La Land and then look at his little thing that he did. And it's very similar. He was a director that's more concerned with the look than most any other director that we've worked with, set aside maybe Wes Anderson. Wes may be the closest person to, say, a Hitchcock who cares about everything for the look, and he cares about the costumes even. Some people that do what we do, they do the costumes as well. There's a few designers that do that, but it's a huge job in itself, the costumes, mm. huge. And I, I can't even fathom how, like Catherine Martin, who is Boz Lerman's wife and does wonderful design on Moulin Rouge, she'll do the costumes at, at the same time. I don't know how they do it. But a Wes is deeply concerned with the costumes and deeply, deeply concerned with the production design. And I would put Damien right up there with a director that cares more about the look of the movie than a lot of the other bosses that we've had. I'm not belittling them in any way, but even Aaron Sorkin, who is a brilliant writer, he didn't even want a location scout. He basically relied on us, which is a great honor to have a director have faith and, in what, and, what you yeah. are doing for him. He and Quentin were more similar in that the dialogue was the thing. Was paramount. And having his actors be able to... To do what they had to do. And I'll say that also about, same with Quentin, and that's yeah. that they are concerned with the geography of a set. I'm being broad in saying this, but it, more than maybe the look of something, it's, it's having the furniture in a geography that will allow them to do the blocking with the actors. And even, I keep talking about Molly's Game because it's the most recent, but Sorkin had a lot of voiceover in the movie, which is his choice, and it was from the very, very beginning, but the voiceover and the dialogue drove the size of the sets when Molly has to first, you know, she has to walk down the hallway and then you go into this room where they do the poker games. And there was so much dialogue that drove the length of the hallway of the set. And the same with Quentin's thing. You need to have the beats that are in the dialogue to take an actor to a door before they exit. So that determines the geography of the, of the set. But again, we do have worked a bit with some really good 
concept illustrators, meaning somebody that can do a painting and say, well, this is sort of what we're thinking for the, the set. It's interesting because that becomes a, a very helpful tool when you have a little sketch to say, this is sort of what we're thinking of, because then that conveys the information to the costume designer, to the camera person, to all the other crew, because our job becomes really a job in conveying this information to a large body of people, a movie crew, whether it be a little tiny movie to these large things like the remake of Blade Runner, which is thousands of people. You, it's art, The art department's job is to try to relay all this information that the director would like to do this, but getting back to the comparison with Quentin, he did not like, and we have not worked with him most recently on Django Unchained or The Hateful Eight or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but he did not like doing storyboards, nor did he like doing concept illustrations because my interpretation of that was that it locked him into doing it a certain way or doing something a certain way. And he wanted the freedom of not being limited. And even with Damien, ideas would come even after you do two, three takes and then he gets an idea or Ryan Gosling would get an idea and they would go, okay, well, let's, let's, let's move, let's move the sofa over here and do it over here. So you want to give that freedom and not be so rigid and, and locked into now a director we haven't worked with Stanley Kubrick, you know, is the opposite of that where everything is thought out. Well, you you got to go to that exhibit. Michael Mann, yeah. too. He, Michael he Mann would too. move furniture. We were so that fortunate to work with Michael Mann, again, one of our favorite directors. We did Collateral, and he was right up there with Wes and Damien, very, 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 very concerned I gotta with minutiae. I got to say, he would, take, he would change for light. Like, if we were scouting a location, an outdoor location, and we'd set it up, okay, we're going to do this. And he's like, yes, I love this. Overpass, this is all great. But then when you come back the day of, three months later, the lights change, it's a whole different thing. That's better. So I, that kind of change I totally understand because that's all about lighting and, and your outdoors. Yeah. But as far as a camera behind a chair and a person looking out at a window, that framing is so important to him and he knows it right away. He, he would have us measure right where away. the chair would be and it would have to be there three yeah, months later when you come back to shoot in exactly the same location. Listen, I'm in town in a real estate deal, closing one night. I got five stops to make. Click signatures, see some friends, and then I got a 6 a.m. out of LAX. Why don't you hang with me? Oh, the car's not for hire unless it gets rags. Regulations? Yeah. These guys don't pay you sick leave. How much you pull down a shift? Oh. How much? 350, Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll make it 600. Uh, man, Plus an extra 100, you get me to LAX, and I don't have to run for the plane. No, no, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, you do. I, I don't know. Yeah, you do. 600. Cool. We got a deal. Here's 300 down. What's your name? Max. Max. I'm Vincent. Cinema is the one medium where you guys are creating geography that is emotionally and technically specific to mm -hmm. that movie alone. You guys mentioned Glorious Bastards a moment ago, and first off, I'm a sucker for backlots. I think they're fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I and I know that you guys shot quite a bit for that, specifically Shoshana's cinema, which you mm -hmm. were talking about. Some yeah. things, you can't really blow up a real yeah. you know, cinema in Berlin yeah. for yeah. that. And my understanding, you were talking about grabbing pieces of cinemas as inspiration. You know, you guys looked at Los Angeles New Beverly Cinema, which just reopened the Vista Theater, which is another great yeah. cinema. Well, you well, know yeah. what? That cinema question is key to that because that had to be the focus from the minute we landed. And the other things just had to be spun along on the side because you just it, had to start right away with special, that. It was truly special effects and fire. When you're dealing with a few things like water and fire and you're putting actors in an ocean or something, and that's why I'm, I'm stunned with the incredible scene in uh, the movie that we did not do that was Alfonso Colon did oh. the, that scene in the water. Roma. Roma. Yeah, that was, yeah. Which is scary. So fire did dictate and steered everything quite a bit. So that was Italy. a weird mix. We looked at a lot. At first he wanted to do, I think it was budgetary. It's always starts budgetary, the reason why we look at locations. But it was great to look at them because there were so many ideas, a mixtures of deco and Baroque happening in Berlin. But there was also the option, when did this happen? We were still at that early point building the interior on the lot. 
early on? Well, we, and then fire yeah. became a problem? First of all, Berlin is like an amazingly beautiful and interesting city architecturally as like here in London, there was a lot of the city was taken out during the Second World War. But there's amazing, amazing old cinemas and things that we were able to, when we were approaching it from a practical standpoint, we had photographs of all these things. So we were able to kind of make a mishmash amalgam of all these different things that Quentin liked and make it Shoshona Cinema. Based out of Bobblesburg Studio, which was, I believe it was Garble's propaganda studio during the Second World War. So it's old wooden studio, very much like the old wooden Hollywood sound stages. Very, very interesting. And we were going to build the auditorium in one of the stages there. And fire was what drove us to, because Quentin wanted not little fire. He wanted <laughs> raging fire. So we could have built the auditorium there. So we ended up being driven to a place where where do we build the auditorium, which you can have a fire, which was done with special well, effects you know with what? propane. First, first we, had, we did build the interior in Babelsberg. And then the landlords decided, no, you just can't burn this because the buildings are so old, the whole thing's going to go down. And But we did have the interior. We had the lobby. When that decision was made, we did build it. And that's what we were going to do. And David built it so that it would take three burns and then it would be compromised and it would take a couple days to Reset. refresh. Yeah. But then the powers Special that be at Babelsberg decided said, yeah. that that's not going to work. So plan B. Yeah, so we, we built the cinema many times. We built the full-size, well, the lobby and the auditorium in the Babelsberg studios. And then we needed a place to do one half of the auditorium with the screen in a place where there could be big fire, which was done in a controllable fashion with propane, where you could turn it on and turn it off. So we went to this location. Now, I was told this is a really old, closed-down cement factory on the outskirts of Berlin that Fritz Lang used as a stage for certain things. But it had, from floor to ceiling, 100-foot which is massive. So we were able to have fire that really was big. So we built the one half of with the stage and the screen, which were able to burn the screen. And then in that same location, which was a cement factory, we built a 50% size of the auditorium, three quarters with the screen. So it was like a miniature where you couldn't have people in it, but you were able to have it was like one half size, so we were able to burn that there. And the that was used for the fire on the drapery? On the, on the showing her face projected oh, on the screen and the screen burning. As of this moment, both Omar and Donowitz should be sitting in the very seats we left them in. Explosives still around their ankle, still ready to explode, and the omission, some would call a terrorist plot, as of this moment, is still a go. That's a pretty exciting story. What's next? Lies on ice? However... All I have to do is pick up this phone right here, inform the cinema, and your plan's kaput. If they're still here. And if they're still alive. And that's one big if. There ain't no way you're gonna take them boys out setting off them bombs. I have no doubt. And yes, some Germans will die, and yes, it will ruin the evening, and yes, Goebbels will be very, very, very mad at you for what you've done to his big night. But you won't get Hitler. You won't get Goebbels, you won't get Goering, and you won't get Bormann. But if I don't pick up this phone right here, you may very well get all four. And if you get all four, you end the war. Tonight. Ooh, that's a bingo. <laughs> Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo? You just say bingo. What was also fortunate is that the back lot at Bobblesburg had a set that was designed by another mentor production designer, Alan Starsky, who did the Roman Polanski's The Pianist. Oh, yeah. So that was there because they did shoot did at Bobblesburg. Was believe. that there beforehand? He I don't know if that. it was before him because mm. there's this huge U-shaped street. street. And I believe that he did it for Poland. Beautiful. And what we did was we redressed the facades and added architectural elements and made it France. And it ended at kind of a street corner and then it went off off of the set and became just forest. So what we did was we took that end of the street 
and added a huge facade, three stories of the cinema, at the lobby entrance, the ticket booth, and all, all of that was built. And then what was also not there, and we added across the street from the cinema, was a French cafe, because when you're in the cinema lobby, you could look out and you could see a French cafe, and he wanted a lot of posters and graphics. So basically, the hero, or the end where you're filming a lot, we built, but was very lucky to have this vast street that went as far as I could see that this other brilliant production designer did. And we just we just used that as to our benefit. Because we were in the time crunch of the 10 weeks before having to shoot, we capitalized on everything that we could take advantage of that would allow us to get everything done. We also were following another really cool movie called The Reader. Do you remember The Reader? Yeah, was that with Kate Winslet? Correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we actually were able to recruit the same location department that did The Reader, and they already had done the drill of World War II. So we were able to really work quicker with this team for practical locations all around Berlin. We were in Babelsberg. We shot the French farmhouse was way down on the Czech Republic border, like way down. It was And then you were in Paris for a couple days too. Pardon? Yes. From my understanding, you had like the interior of the cafe. All of, we were in Paris for that. But we were then also, we had to do the movie within the movie, which was Nation's Pride. And that was in- Gorlitz, right? Gorlitz, which we was all also used in the reader they used that extensively and actually a movie a Wes Anderson movie that we did not do the Grand Budapest Hotel they followed us after Inglorious and they went to Gorlitz and there was an empty location that I wanted to use in Gorlitz which was a big deco retail store and I wanted to use it because we went down there Quentin sent us to Gorlitz to shoot Nation's Pride, and he scouted, and we looked at it, and he said, this is great. But he said, Eli Roth, who played the, one of the... The Jew Bear, right? Yeah. The Jew Bear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He said, Eli, you direct us. So I was like, great. So Eli gets his brother to come from Boston. Eli's a good director on great. his own. That was great. He brings his brother in from Boston, who's another good director. So they do, we do this really great movie. And I had a wonderful art director, actually a co-British Berlin living art director, Steve Summerskill, who kind of was the point man there. It was mostly practical location, but we do this thing that actually turned out to be this fantastic little movie that Quentin actually got jealous of with Eli. <laughs> Which was interesting, um, but close. but they I wanted to use this big retail <laughs> store. It was also you know to have the soldiers running through that and all of those, and we just didn't have time. But then Wes picks that for the, that became the Grand Budapest it Hotel, the interior yeah, with the big atrium. Well, how many weeks did you have for Nation's Pride, a movie within a it movie? Was a va- it was a big. It was like a week, one week shoot. It was like a movie that would rival a modest budget movie because <laughs> we had costumes and yeah. extras. It, there were Effects. little bits and pieces of dialogue. Stunned people flying off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Black and white saved um, it. But getting back to Berlin and Babelsberg, we base out of Babelsberg which was rather luxurious for offices and having stages right there was very convenient. But Berlin had amazing locations throughout, which we were able to actually use practical locations. Einstein's Cafe, where the Christoph Waltz character has to grill Shoshona over a eclair. And that was a fantastic old coffee shop. It was mostly decorating, which is just as important as a built set and Sandy oversaw that, but fantastic, fantastic practical locations throughout. But the way we pulled the whole thing off was we had no time. We go to Berlin. My big challenge is getting a crew. And in these cities that are very busy, and they are all really busy, and London is busy right now, it is really a challenge to get a crew because the way we do our job is the set decorating department and the art department is to have a competent crew of talented craftspeople that are very good at being able to do their thing. If you don't have that crew, we're not going to be able to pull it off. So Roman Polanski is set to start filming The Ghost Writer and lost their money. And something happened and I don't know. They eventually uh, made it. It was eventually made, but the movie falls apart and I get the art director. 
and his whole crew. An A-list team, Sebastian Carwinkle, fantastic art director. And the other lucky thing that I did not know is that everyone spoke perfect English. And usually that, that's a tradition in Europe. In school, you're brought up to speak your language and then to at least one other language and often two other languages. So a lot of our crew spoke German. That was their first language. And then English and then French Russian, or Italian. French or French. Oh, or the older French fellows all spoke Russian. Yeah. yeah, very, very interesting. So not only did I have a fantastic crew that was just rivaled anything coming out of Hollywood, they were exuberant about working for Tarantino. Quentin was not unknown. He was known then. People were very excited about the movie coming there. So it was an exciting thing and quite wonderful. That's really huge with that short of prep is to have those people in place and just trust them. Yeah. If the Polanski movie was going at the same time, I would have I would have had to bring in, in some English art directors. But yeah, also, Quentin really wanted to make sure that this movie, what we were backing up from was Cannes. So it was sort of an unobtainable deadline to actually shoot the movie, edit the movie, promote the movie. Cannes, it was almost like the window was also a crunch for him. So his concern was... Okay, how is it going to go over if an all-French movie, nothing is shot in France? We had to do something in France. So it was, we had the cafe. (laughs) So it was, and again, this is, it was like a dream job for me, an absolute dream job. While the big machine of building the sets and getting everything ready. And and then even during filming, uh, I had made many trips to Paris to find the perfect cafe, which meant every cafe had to be photographed. (laughs) Literally, I would say 100 cafes. None of that worked for Quentin. And then we went out of the zone, like out of where you drive when you're not supposed to drive because you have to bring a crew. And we looked at every cafe also, including, which was very interesting, Van Gogh lived above a pub in a little town outskirts of Paris. And we actually went and I actually have very interesting photographs of Quentin and Bob Richardson standing in Van Gogh's room that he lived in was like 10 by 10 by 10. It was a tiny, tiny little room. And that's where he painted and did. And it was above this cafe. So what ended up making the selling to Quentin was he had us look at another movie reference, which I mentioned before, how we would say, go look at this movie. There was a Claude Chabral movie called The Blood of Others. And it was not a very good movie, but it was Jodie Foster. And they did it in a little cafe. So of the things that we're scouting, we did not know but we actually shot the cafe that was used in that movie. And Quentin was like, this looks really good. We had to do set dressing. There was a big scene. It faced a rather large intersection of streets. So all that had to be dressed. And Glorious Bastards was a movie of graphics. And that's sort of what Quentin likes. I did not do Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but there's a great use of billboards, bus bench ads, movie posters. Movie posters were so important to Quentin. We did all custom posters. All custom posters, marquees, the marquee on the Bobblesburg movie theater. All that was all custom done, but same in France we did. So we had, it was a week of filming. And it was quite a big production. There were many, many extras. It was a nice rounded out thing that really helped sell the movie. But we did huge movie billboards that were out the window. So you're in the cafe, you look out, you could see things way in the distance. It was quite wonderful. Do you ever have to worry about, you just get to choose any movie posters you want? Or is there any issue with like... Anguish. No, Quentin is minutia over everything. First of all, clearance has become a big issue for most all directors and writers now where you, you can't mention a name of anything unless it's cleared. Any artwork specifically. Movie posters tend to fall into, it's an odd freedom of rights category where if it's a promotion thing but it's there's still rights that and you need to clear but in the case with Quentin they're masterfully painted out and and also you had to have I forget the actor's name that played Animation's Pride great Daniel Burrell German actor his face had to be in a lot the amount of graphics that was produced for that movie is so vast that involve everything from 
uh, wine labels that were overseen by Quentin to cigarette packs. That was, again, something that we designed early on was the Red Apple cigarettes for Pulp Fiction. I think it was the first movie. And then that that carries from movie to movie to movie. Like he does actually move actors from movie to movie to movie. True. When we said earlier, he doesn't care so much about the art direction. The that graphics, part of the art graphics direction. Is, graphics is huge. And of course, any thing. prop. And the, the graphics props, on, the of props course, are the big, cereal big boxes and, and the cigarettes. Huge. And, yeah, huge. Yeah, he loves those. Um, and often in, in, in Glorious, he would mention old movies that he loved. A lot of George Sanders movies from the 40s and 30s. And the, the posters would be based on old posters. And, of course, our team would colorize them and put in our actors. With Damien, we used a lot of film posters, but we'd show him a lot of them. He'd pick some, and they would get cleared. But they'd be actual posters from but, yeah, films and then with in, in La La Land, in them or... Mia, Emma Stone character, actually, and it got kind of cut out of the movie her character in the original screenplay actually was infatuated by um ingrid bergman ingrid yeah. bergman it's kind of cut down and watered down in the finished edit there's a play that she does and it's about ingrid bergman in the original screenplay we actually do the play and it got cut down but that's why we had the big image of her face and a lot of people say well why did you put ingrid bergman's big face in her room you know like but she's influenced by it. but that's also also this kind of surreal thing, how would somebody get such a large image? But that's what Damien wanted, the reality to look kind of off kilter and odd. And then when you had these sets, they would look very real. Although that's not so much the case either, because even the grand finale was very much kind of cardboard cutout type sets. You know, yeah. it was dancing through a world of Hollywood where we showed lamp posts and things were just basically flat painted cutouts. We were talking a lot about the pleasure of diving into the detail of things. And I wanted just for a moment to shift and talk about set decorating for a second yeah. because specifically, you know, I heard that you mentioned Dr. Chicago as a movie that any aspiring set decorator should study. We talked to a sound designer and used this amazing anecdote in regards to finding the sounds which are right for the emotion of the movie. I'm sure the same as for set decorating, when you gotta pick a, a couch or a chandelier, you gotta pick not just what looks nice, but what fits the emotion of the space. So I was wondering what is your process too in regards to going and finding the details which are gonna then fill the sets. I, for the most part, allow it to grow through the prep a little bit. First of all, reading the script, images will come to mind. And then speaking with the director, those will be finessed or my ideas would be shared with him or her. And then they'll have ideas themselves. Then there's also the overlay. When the actors are actually hired, they add another dimension to your choice. I'm talking more about these would be more intimate spaces, people's apartments or houses or their character spaces versus the bigger things, railroad interiors. Those elements all come together with a first draft. Sometimes it's at the beginning, I feel as an actor would, you struggle to try and find the what would really show the character without you know being too blatant. What's going to be subtly in a room? What colors are going to be used? All the tools in our toolbox, which is something that Shivago shows so well, is that the furniture range is you can have poor furniture, meaning handmade wooden furniture, versus all the way up to an exotic, expensive piece, whether it's modern or period. So you're using that element in the furnishings, using color. So color adds em emotional impact to a room. Lighting is huge. Lighting, and it's become more and more important as more things are done digitally. The lamps are really important to light it, whether it's subtle lighting or glaring lighting or green or yellow lighting. If there's window treatments, how much light's coming in. You think about all those things in, re in regards to how the actor is going to be using the space, the actor in the story, are using the space and what happens in the space. So reality, films with reality, like Molly's Game, the use of the toolbox would be a little bit to say, okay, well, here's Molly's penthouse, the game in Los Angeles versus the game in New York. And you're so you're trying to set up sort of masculine sets that are 
geared towards who she's attracting to be there and playing these games. You're designing the set to sort of incorporate the game itself. And you're letting everyone know, okay, we're in LA. This is a warm climate. This is a sophisticated international clientele. So we used a lot of beiges and grays and silvers and maybe a little bit of streamlined accents versus anything too curvilinear, but modern. And then when we moved to New York, there is also the addition of a Russian gang element there that kind of impressed me a little bit. So that became more of the mahogany men's club, mahoganies and reds and golds, and darker and more interior because of being in the north. So the use of the colors there, the lines of the furniture, were emphasized what parts of the country you were in. With something more fantastic like Tenenbaums or La La Land, you're heightening. The wonderful thing about both of those is they were about young people. So there was a mixture of keeping a youthful color palette in rooms. You could have a, a collection of furnitures from all kinds of places because they were collectors in themselves. You figured they weren't finding things that appealed to them. So everything in those rooms were pretty specific and personal in one way or another. Even if they were throwaway, it had an interesting color on it from a thrift shop chair. But they also emphasized the characters, like in the in Tenenbaums, these were almost like gilded cages. They were like little odes to their successful childhood. But as adults, they were also living in these very isolating, closed rooms. So they were almost like little... Dioramas. Yeah, little box dioramas. And they were different colors. Chaz's gray symmetry was all about his control. And Richie's was more joyful. He's more youthful. He played. But he was also sort of poetic and fragile. The very small things. You know, the Luke Wilson character. So he had his little communication radio, the tennis paraphernalia. And then Margot's was just a little more frenetic. And, and the red made it a little more angry and the jumping zebras and the a lot of these the zebras were actually something that west chose so that was an important thing to that we knew was on the wall which was great so any any of the other patterns sort of a curvy hippie-ish it was it was a textile bedspread mixed with the drapery and things kind of work to emphasize her sort of scattered world. The decorating is really fun. Luckily, I've kind of treated it more like an installation as in an art museum and that's something that's only going to be there for a while. It's something to help tell this story and then it's gone in a way. So it, in, in the cases of Tenenbaums and La La Land, they can be very theatrical and, and, and emotional. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to David and Sandy for taking the time to meet us in London and for sharing their stories. And to Eric Boss for doing such an amazing job final mixing these episodes. Make sure you catch part two of the conversation where we dive deep into the making of La La Land. If you enjoy our program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners find this show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. <laughs>